The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and listeners, I'm officially sick of being cold. I know, I know, I know, I love snow, and I often complain that we don't get enough in the D.C. metro area, but I'm just going to get real with you all for a second. Winter has really started to take a toll on my mental health. It's hard to have socially distanced gatherings with friends, even around fire pits when it's cold like it's been here, and... I guess this is my way of saying that I've been feeling a little sad, isolated, all of those feelings that so many people are experiencing right now. But I'm happy and grateful to be healthy and able to do this important work and to be in your ears right now. For today's episode, I'm chatting with Ben Lowe, a current PhD student whose work and research bridges the human, religious, and ethical dimensions of climate change and conservation. He actually came to me via Marianne Inglis, the wife of Bob, and listeners, I'm ready to make her the podcast booking agent because Ben is a riveting guest I cannot wait for you to hear. So without further ado, my conversation with Ben Lowe. Welcome back, listeners. I'm so happy to present to you today our new best friend at Republic EN, Ben Lowe. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chelsea. It's great to be with you all. And even though we might be new best friends, I've been a huge fan and follower of the work of Republic and EN for years now. And I'm, I'm so grateful for what you all do. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I should just tell listeners that... I had a cancellation for this episode and was prepared to just take the week off. And then it was Bob Inglis's wife, Marianne, who emailed and said, I think Ben would be a great guest on your show. And I was like, let's get him on. So not only are we meeting for the first time as we record right now, we didn't have a preview call or anything. So everything you say is going to be news to me at the same time it's news to our listeners. Yep, living on the edge today. I love it. Well, with all of that said, so as listeners, as I explained, Ben's life work, and I say life work, you're probably in your early to mid-20s, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> now you're going to have to add 10 years to that. What? Seriously? I'm, I'm 36. <laughs> oh, my God. I I get that all the time, first of all. Um I will not reveal my age, but I have <laughs> I have a son in college. And so people are always like, All right. how do you have a son in college? Um, it's yep. a great thing when it is a great thing at this point in our lives to be mistaken for being younger. I'm starting to appreciate it a lot more now. Yeah, you probably, you know, get carted and stopped to get on the fun rides <laughs> at amusement parks. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, as I explained to our listeners, your passion is really making this connection between um, people's religious faith um, beliefs and yeah. climate change. So how did you first come to this as your mission in life? Sure, that's a great question. And it's a long story that I'll try to keep much tighter. Um, 
which is that that's how I came to it. You know, I grew up a Christian. I grew up a person of faith. Faith was the most important part of my life. But I also really loved the outdoors. I loved fishing, hiking, camping. And those things were connected for most of my childhood. I'm sorry, those things were disconnected for most of my childhood. Uh, I didn't see how my faith had anything to do with my love for the outdoors and the environment. And then uh, while I was an undergraduate at Wheaton College, a Christian school outside of Chicago, it was really my professors there in the theology department who helped me connect my Christian faith and all the resources and teachings that it gives uh, that motivate us to be concerned about the environment, help us to understand our place in this world and our role in this world. And then it was really a lot of my science professors that connected the dots for me between all the main, you know, the great challenges that we're dealing with in the world today and how uh, integral the environment and environmental well-being is to the well-being and health of people. And so, you know, if you could sum it up, I think Jesus was asked what the most important commandments were. He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what it boiled down to for me uh, as a college student, coming, you know, making these connections for the first time in my life, is that I can't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength if I don't care for and love the world that he made, that he declares good, and that is part of his plan. And I, same as for the second, I can't claim to love my neighbor as myself if I'm not willing to engage wholeheartedly in this work of caring for the environment that we all depend on for our survival and well-being. Well, I know this is a podcast devoted to climate change and the environment, but I have to say the love thy neighbor part is Mm. a lesson that people need to remind themselves of right now. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Um, But that really, what you just, it it is, but what you said, um, actually, I love my neighbor. It was her birthday this weekend. I baked brownies last night and dropped them off this morning when I had a few minutes. So, um, but aside from that, my, one of my bosses, when I worked in the Senate, um, former Senator Mm. Bob Smith from New Hampshire, he was a Mm. really devout Catholic. And when Mm. he took the chairmanship of the Environment and Public Works Committee, where I was already a staff person, there were a bunch of us on the committee who weren't, you know, we were issue experts on the things that we did, but we weren't mm-hmm. his people, right? We had never worked mm-hmm. for him before. Sure. And our boss had died. So it was really, we were all very mm-hmm. sad. And he was taking the the helm. And he gave us all the chance to basically apply for our jobs and to try to stay. And, and we mm. just didn't know where, how, what his position was going to be on the environment. And he came in and he said, basically what you just said, I'm a Catholic. I believe that it is my job to take care of this place that God has lent to us and the critters mm-hmm. that he has placed here with us. And mm-hmm. so he was like all in on the project that I was working on and that my colleagues were working on. And and it, that was my first experience with that, where I saw that connection between faith and the environment. And I think it really does make a compelling case for, for many people. Yeah. And in my work, we've, you know, I've come to see how in many ways it's become a bit of a blind spot for a lot of our churches and a lot of our faith communities. And also sometimes a lot of the environmental communities and science communities in this country, there's been a lot of mutual suspicion and a lack of relationship and engagement with one another. And I think a lot of great people are working to change that. So I'm really encouraged by what we're seeing happening around the country and encouraged by folks like Bob Inglis, who's helping to do that as well. Uh, But really, at the end of the day, I think faith gives us so many powerful resources 
to engage these issues that would be lacking if people of faith didn't step up to the plate. You know, I think of the importance of politics and policy in solving environmental problems. But at the end of the day, environmental problems, before they're even political or economic issues, at the end of the day, they're moral issues and ethical issues. They're about what's good and what's right and what's bad and what's wrong and making those choices and having to figure out practically at every level how to love our neighbor and care for this planet. And I think, you know, um, when it comes down to it, environmental issues are problems of things like they're greed problems, they're selfishness problems, they're apathy problems, they're ignorance problems, and and all these other things that are really moral issues underlying everything. And as a Christian, I look at that and I think, okay, so my faith tradition, the language that I would use to understand and describe those moral problems is the problem of sin. At the end of the day, there's this brokenness in ourselves, in the world, and we can't fix this world um, just as much as we can't fix ourselves. And so really, as a Christian, I think, oh, we're looking for a solution to the problem of sin. And that's what Christianity teaches. It teaches that there is a solution, that it's that God, who is the creator, cares so much about this world that God came into this world, intervened into this world in the form of a person in order to show us how to live and then to overcome this darkness and sin and death on our behalf on the cross and then invites us to follow God in living this new life where we um, have all this hope and we have this vision for what it means to really care for this planet and really love our neighbors, not because we're desperate or scared about what will happen if we don't, but because it's, it's a privilege and an invitation we have, and it's really one of the most hopeful narratives that I found in terms of how we see the world and how we engage in it. So I think, you know, as people of faith, there is no reason for us to be on the sidelines like we too often have, uh, and every reason for us to jump in without fear and without suspicion, but really to embrace this calling that we've been given. And speaking of Catholics, I think Pope Francis has really helped elevate that conversation for much of the world. He really has. So um, how do you take this this feeling, this life's mission now of yours, you were at Wheaton and you had this epiphany. How has that mm. translated into what you are doing today, the work you're doing today? <laughs> That's a great question. And it's a messy answer because I'm so <laughs> discerning it myself. It's a, you know, life is a journey. Faith is a journey. It sure is. Um, yeah. And so there's a few, there's a few different aspects, but two in particular. One is I work with a number of, well, let me start with the, the other one. Um, I'm in grad school now, finishing up a PhD in interdisciplinary ecology. So I'm really trying to study how people perceive and engage and respond to issues like climate change. These are really big, complex issues, and I'm interested in understanding and then helping to shape and mobilize uh, people as we seek to respond faithfully to these challenges. And then the second part of what I do outside of my research and the teaching that goes along with it and everything is I work with a number of faith-based nonprofits. For instance, the one that Marianne and I work together on is Arasha. And Arasha is an international Christian conservation organization working in 20 countries around the world. And it looks different in each country because it's very much based on the local context, the local resources, and the local challenges and opportunities. But in the United States, for instance, um, we're working with musicians and other artists around the country to create music and art that helps us rebuild our connection to creation and understand our relationship with creation and express that. 
Um, we're working with, and this is something Marianne's really involved in, uh, curriculum to help teach children and reintroduce children to nature around them and how to care for it because there's often so much of a disconnect by the way we live our lives today. And so just really trying to rebuild some of these relationships so that we can then know the world around us, know how we're impacting it, and then know better how to care for it and love the people around us. And so it's really a process of restoration, but it begins with building that relationship. So those are some of the different ways that I've been trying to engage. Yeah, um, I do think that there's really something to be said for for starting when people are young, right? And, and so mm-hmm. I remember, I forget how old I was when my family started recycling, but it was definitely a moment of, oh, I shouldn't just throw this away anymore. And my mom was an early adopter on the recycling thing. So this was probably in the 80s sometime, maybe even the 70s. I'm dating myself. But um, but I do remember, <laughs> like, my friends thought it was weird, right? They would be at my house and let's, oh, let's make a can of soup or whatever. And they'd be like, why aren't you just throwing that can away? And, I'm, oh, my mom will get mad at me. But, you know, she pretty much drilled it into us that this was yeah. how it was going to be. And now I didn't even have to teach my kids that, right? They just know mm. the yogurt container goes in the recycle bin, the, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we compost too. So they now know what nice. goes in the compost. What go- So, yeah. And it, I think also with climate change, my kids right. have learned about climate change in school. I won't say it wasn't happening when I was in school because I think we know now that it was, but it was certainly not <laughs> you know, the most pressing generational issue that we need to solve. So I think that's really, you have to, I think you can help, not that people aren't able to come to terms with things when they're older, because certainly Bob Mm -hmm. Inglis has a great story, right? Of how he realized that climate change was something that he needed to direct his focus on and that it wasn't a hoax. And so Mm -hmm. we appreciate those later in life switches too, but man, it's easier to just get people when they're young. (laughs) Well, and they're related too, because part of Bob's story is conversations he's had with his kids that have encouraged him to pay more attention to these issues. And we have lots of data to show a couple of things here. And this, okay, this is the the nerdy grad student (laughs) hat here. I'm ready. (laughs) But we have lots of data that show that the earlier you engage kids with the world around them, the more likely it is to stick and the more likely they are to grow up caring about it. And then the flip, uh, the, the other piece, not the flip side, but the other piece I wanted to mention is that we've also found that children have a really, children, youth, adolescents have a really significant and influential role to play in helping their parents and grandparents and the older generations re-engage these issues that might be polarized for them uh, for different reasons, a lot of them politics, but they help them re-engage them through fresh eyes and see them through the eyes of the younger generations who are inheriting the world that we're set to leave them and have a huge stake. And one of the groups I helped to start a number of years ago is Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And and they're still really active today and doing great work. But one of the things that was most encouraging is we started to realize as we as we did this work around engaging Christians around climate, that so many of our elders in the faith and in the country, you know, there's so many older generations who were in leadership positions, they might not know what to think about climate change, but they really cared about what we cared about. And they really wanted to understand what we cared about. And so that was a really encouraging um, experience because it gave me hope that there are ways to build these relationships and these connections moving forward. So peer into your crystal ball, what do you (laughs) see for yourself after you're done with your PhD? 
Well, that is a great question. Not to sound like your mom. I'm sure your parents are asking the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know, I've never really, I'm a planner, but all my plans in the past have gone in directions I didn't expect. So I'm going to plan. I'm going to, I'm starting to look for jobs. So if anyone um, is trying to hire someone uh, who sounds like me, feel free to get in touch. <laughs> but I think, you know, my, my passion is to remain engaged, whatever sector it is, at this nexus between faith, religion, and the environment and climate change. And it's really like, so speaking of peering into a crystal ball, like as, as much as we can tell, there are some massive transitions happening in the world and in this country, driven by technology, driven by the economy, driven by politics and policy. And we are moving to a clean energy future. We have built, there's so much momentum there. It's unstoppable at this point. What's not yet clear is how quickly we're going to make that transition and how justly we're going to make that transition. And so I think really the role for a lot of faith communities, a lot of groups like Republic EN and, and others, and what I hope to contribute to is helping to speed that transition along so that we are able to take decisive action before the impacts worsen much further, but also so that we can make it more just and we can pay attention to all the communities that are being marginalized or made vulnerable because of the changing environment, but also because of the, tra- the transition that we're making. So this includes coal mining communities in Appalachia. It includes communities and people, households who work in the fossil fuel industry and will need good jobs in order to provide for their families when we make this transition. So I think it's an all of the above thing. And that's why I think groups like yours and Young Evangelicals for Climate Action and Arasha are all different pieces of this puzzle that we're trying to figure out together. Yeah, you know, when I think about that transition, I just imagine in my head that there have to be things that in 10, 20 years are going to be commonplace that we can't even envision them today. Somebody Mm -hmm. can, maybe the the, the person is a little more technical than I can. But and then I think my grandma is 103, believe it or not. Yeah. And so she was born in 1917 in Uh. the midst of another pandemic. So she's living through Mm. her second pandemic. Oh, dear. And just the things she's seen, right? Vehicles, air travel, space travel, the the internet, which she uses. (laughs) So I like to think that when I'm her age, which I hope to get to see, um, you know, the things that that we're going to be doing, I mean, hopefully, all the people who are, are, going to be part of that technological transition anyway are Mm -hmm. going to have just these magical things it's gonna be like the jetsons when i was little i watched the (laughs) jetsons i wanted the vacuum cleaner that would just do its own thing and (laughs) now we we have that we do have that (laughs) um ben if people want to get in touch with you and either follow your work or get involved with any of the volunteer stuff that you do or or they're more interested in they're interested in your research and want to learn more how can they find you well, well, I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, although I'm, I'm horrible at Twitter. So Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> uh, but Being horrible at website. Twitter is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, as I've seen what Twitter does to some people, I just it's not been motivating for me to get involved in it more. Um, but I do, I do appreciate the value of, of some of these social media. But also my website is benlow.net, and that's kind of the hub for what I just try to keep that updated in terms of the work I'm involved in and and that has ways to get in touch with me. And then the, the organizations that I mentioned 
uh, on this chat, Arasha, um, which is spelled A-R-O-C-H-A dot org. They're a great group to learn about and get involved with. And Young Evangelicals for Climate Action is another great group. So I think there's just so much going on out there that I'm really excited about. And I will put links for all of those, including Ben's website, in our show notes. So if you're listening and you didn't catch spellings or anything, just go to the <laughs> RepublicIan.org website and go to our blog and you'll see the post on the day that the episode drops. But Ben, you were a really awesome impromptu guest. This was fun, Thanks. and I would love to yeah. check back in with you at some point. We can do a little update, see how things are going. Anytime. Awesome. Well, thank Thanks you so for your for time. Thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now, back to this week's episode. So, Price, what did you think of Mr. Ben Lowe? I thought Ben was awesome, and I knew he would be awesome having met and talked to Ben before, although obviously you do not know until you get them on the podcast. But knowing Ben, knowing who he is, how great he's been uh, to us, Bob, our entire team in the past, uh, I had no doubt that this would be a home run. And from everything I heard, it sounded like it was certainly just that. And... You know, I will say this just really quickly before we get into a few things is a big thank you to Ben, not just for joining the podcast, but to being a, a valued, just such a valued uh, member of our team as far as a partner that we have worked with in the past and setting up events and um, helping us in the state of Florida as where he's, uh, you know, obviously a doctoral student like you guys talked about. Ben is just an awesome dude, and I'm so glad that Marianne Inglis made that wonderful suggestion to have Ben on the podcast. The floor is yours, Chelsea. He is just all the things, right? He's smart. He's funny. He comes off to me just so kind and thoughtful, and I really like people that are kind of all those things. And he was super quick to respond to me, which I also appreciate. Not everyone is good with email especially people who are younger. And I know he's not as young as I thought he was, but <laughs> yeah, he, uh, trying you to get an email from my kids. Oh my God, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> yeah, he, ben is just, he is a, just a great guy and has a great personality and an infectious personality. I really can't meet to meet him uh, in person one day. Cause I feel like that we do know each other having worked and, you know, helped plan some events before in the state of Florida and at UF. But yeah, just, um, you know, check out his website, please. If you got any more questions or, or certainly want to know um, a little bit more about Ben, benlow.net or follow him on Twitter at Ben S. Lowe. I know he said he's better on Facebook and Instagram, but yeah, Ben is, uh, Ben is an awesome guy and has a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting things to say and interesting background. So, Price, this week we have our big webinar on budget reconciliation, something I know all our listeners would love to learn more about. Yep, and you are going to help lead that webinar. Uh, you're gonna, God help us all. <laughs> you're you're going to tee it up for Alex Flint, who we've had on the podcast before, and Joe Magicket, two guys that know a lot about the budget reconciliation process when it comes to the Senate. and. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I'm anywhere like a fraction uh, as smart as either of those two guys and talk about budget reconciliation because it's something that you've heard reconciliation and climate come up probably since Joe Biden was named the official winner, at least, uh, of the 2020 presidential election. And that is a vehicle in which, uh, you know, possible potential climate legislation uh, gets passed. And so... 
Both of them, Alex Flint and Joe Magicet, two guys that know this process very well on the Senate side, they're going to get into it, and then some, uh, led by yours truly, Chelsea Henderson. So I'm excited to hear this uh, and, and hear the webinar and, and listen to what they have to say uh, this Thursday at, what, one thirty Eastern Standard Time. Right, and so you know how in um, comedic duos that there's, like, the funny person and the straight person and the straight person is like tease up for the funny people. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like in this webinar, we have the smart people and then me. And I don't know anything about budget reconciliation, even though I am a Senate recovering Senate staffer. No, and Senate so, snob. <laughs> and Senate snob. So, so I'm looking forward to learning about the thing that I just put my blinders on and never thought about when I was actually on the hill. So I, it's going to be fun. And I can't wait for you guys to see my slides. I you have guys, this, I have this game. I'm going to, I'm going to out myself here. I have this game every week. Cause when I listen to your interviews for our feature guest, I listen and I wait for that moment where you say is a former Senate staffer, or you go down a Senate uh, story <laughs> and it's usually within definitely within the first six, seven minutes, you go down that road. And, you know, I play that personal game and and guess when that minute will be sometime in like a minute to two minute window when that will be in each year, each of your interviews. Yes, I'm outing myself and no, I'm not making fun of you. I just know that you are a proud member of, uh, you know, John Warner staff and enjoyed your time over there. Well, I mean, obviously it was a monumental point. Um, experience in my life. And that's really funny because I feel like I don't really talk about it much otherwise. So it just, there must be something about the podcast and the topics, et cetera, that brings it out in me. But now I'm going to be timing myself like oh I got three minutes into that conversation before well, I brought it up it's a point of pride and I had somebody <laughs> I'm not going to name them or anything like that but I had a friend uh, just recently send me a text uh, within the last two weeks that was referring to the uh, events of January the 6th and let's just say that their politics are a little bit different than mine um, especially now and you know they talked about how you know said something to the effect of, I'm sorry you ever had to work there. And I said, uh, to the contrary, I st- I don't care what happened on the 6. I do care about what happened, but, you know, in that sense, I don't, you know, I've still got that pride. Me, I, I didn't yeah. care what happened in terms of, I, that pride is never going to go away from serving, you know, working for Bob, certainly working for the people of the 4th District of South Carolina in the House of Representatives. Um, and so it just went on to, you know, there, there's just a point of pride. And I, and I thought about that. Um, just a couple of weeks ago when a friend of mine, you know, we got into it o- over the, you know, the situation there on the six and, you know, it, regardless of, of where, you know, if you're a former Hill staffer, there's just, there's just immense amount of uh, a pride that you have in, in taking in, in working in that building, working for members who work in that building and certainly working for the people, uh, who sent you to work in that building. For sure. And, you know, it is, it's a special opportunity and, it's one that not everyone gets, and so yeah, it ha- it leaves a lasting impact for sure. Which I think is also not to you know belabor January sixth, but why that touched me so much, or why on the sixth I was a basket case, right? And I was seeing these halls that I had walked in, and and seeing what was happening. It really just hurt me, even though I wasn't there. I felt the trauma. 
it was a little, it reminded me a little of the trauma I felt on 9-11 where I was working there and I was in the office that day, but for January 6th, it was just, it became this kind of obsession where I had to read every story and, mm-hmm. and just neat, you know, and, and there is something about trauma that it can, you know, kind of come back and tap you at a time you don't expect it. So I think it definitely triggered some of my 9-11 trauma. And, and then when I hear the stories of different people who were there that day, I just am so em- empathetic to their experiences. And so anyway, we just took a big turn yeah. <laughs> there. Right. Um, Want to know about next week's guest? Yes, next week's guest. Okay, so don't kill me, but there are two. Uh-oh. And you're going to have Two's to... Two's better than one. Two is better than one, and we get a little two for one. And you're going to need to do a little, you know, they, we didn't do them together. So these are two separate interviews, but with two of our newer spokespeople, both women. So I am not sure how you're going to order them, but one of the conversations is with Casey Hirschman. She's in Houston, Texas. She's a chemical engineer. She works in the oil and gas industry, specifically in fracking. And she's also a passionate outdoors woman. So we, she kind of broke down what fracking means and does, which I, I told her. I think a lot of people feel like they know they're for it or against it without even really understanding what it is. So I had her kind of break that down and also talk about how she balances her career in oil and gas with her, um, her outdoorsiness and her passion for backpacking and rock climbing. So she's great. And then also um, from Florida, because we have had more people from the state of Florida on this show than any other state, um, Nicole Kershoff. She is the owner of Live Advantage Bait. So basically a marine fish hatchery. She produces bait fish and food fish that she farms. And she is so fascinating as well. And we just had a great conversation, and and one thing I just want to preview it a little bit because you might think that that sounds kind of boring, but you know, having fish that is farm raised has kind of gotten a bad rap, right? Like people want these mm-hmm. quote unquote wild caught salmon, and the way she put it is, we farm our vegetables. You your your steak was farmed. <laughs> your cheese comes from a farm. Like basically everything you eat comes from a farm, but people are like, oh no, not fish. I don't want my fish yeah. to be farmized. <laughs> and so, but she has a good job at connecting the water quality issues that the hatcheries face to climate change and especially being in Florida and the extra challenges they face in that state. So those two badass, ooh, am I allowed to say badass? Um, those FCC two, rules do not apply on the podcast. FYI. Okay. Two badass women of Republic EN, both spokespeople, both new. And I just want to be BFFs with them both because they're so amazing. Girl power. I love what's coming wow. ahead next week. Girl power. Speaking of girl power, Chelsea, we got um, girl power and some of our new members recently that have joined on to Republic EN. Rebecca R. in Texas. Julie W. in Indiana, Emma B. in Michigan, William J. in California, and Tim P. in Massachusetts. And if you want to be a member and flex your girl power, you don't have to be a girl. You can be a girl or guy, clearly. Uh, Republican.org forward slash join. Please uh, take the time if you're interested, especially if you are a conservative. I will sound like Bob Inglis, which he makes the pitch all the time on events, Zooms, webinars, whatever it may be. If you are a 
conservative and care about climate change, we especially need you. We'll welcome anybody that wants to join, but especially conservatives. Here's looking at you, republican.org forward slash join Chelsea. It is take seconds. We would love to have you join us. And certainly um, we thank everybody for joining us this week on the podcast. You can download, listen, subscribe at uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, many different ways to listen to us here on the Eco Right Speaks. Chelsea Henderson. Well, I can't wait to hear you next week, Price, and to um, see what you think of of our girl power ladies. And for all of you who want to know about budget reconciliation, remember, remember, remember to find our webinar on Thursday. You're going to love it. You're going to love my slides. That's right. Webinar this Thursday, 1.30 Eastern Standard Time. But until then, we will see you again next week right here on the EcoRight Speaks podcast brought to you by Republican.org. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the EcoRight Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.